Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together and to worship you. We ask your spirit to guide and lead us as we look at your, your word and see what you would want us to learn from this section. And we thank you for this book in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. So far in Jonah, we've had Jonah get told by God to go to Nineveh. Jonah decided, no, I'm not. Tried to run away from God, ran into a storm. Got thrown overboard because the storm was so bad, the sailors were in a panic and obeyed what he said. Great fish swallowed him. He repented. He got up and he preached a wonderful message to Nineveh, repent, you're dying in 40 days. Uh, that's literally what it says. You repent, you're, you're going to be destroyed in 40 days. He, he really had a good message. Now, but remember, Nineveh was his enemy. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed. He was not looking for, for Nineveh to be repenting. And now we take off where this is at, where God is going to, we left off in verse 3, chapter, uh, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, that God repented. He wasn't going to destroy, destroy Nineveh. And we talked about how they gained 148 extra years because of their repentance. So now we're on verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray you, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my own country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repents of, what, of your evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech you, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. We're going to stop here because this is kind of an interesting prayer. All right. God has forgiven Nineveh. Why? Because everybody from the king down repented. And the king said, repent of our evil and hopefully maybe this God will have kindness on us and they repented and God has kindness on them and Jonah's attitude is it displeased him now we read that and we don't really think that much of it but in Hebrew says he was trembling with extreme agitation he wasn't just displeased he was shaking in his anger all right he was exceedingly anger and if that wasn't enough it says he was displeased, Jonah, exceedingly, which is, again, great anger. So he's quivering and shaking with extreme anger. Now, I don't think I've ever been in a place where I was that angry with God. Uh, maybe with somebody else once in a while. But, and then it was he was very angry. So three words here saying he was angry, angry, angry. <laughs> You think Jonah was, God's trying to make a point here? <laughs> Jonah's angry. <laughs> All right. Why is, he, why is he so angry? Well, this is the enemy of Israel. You know, he wanted them destroyed. That's why he ran away in the first place. He was going, God, you want to destroy them? Be my guest. You know, this is the enemy of my people. I don't care. You go ahead and destroy them. I'm running. I'm going as far away as possible. I am not delivering your message. Kind of forgetting that God would make sure the message got there anyway. And so he gets very, very upset. And it's interesting, and he prayed unto the Lord. So he knew who to pray to. All right? So he is good. I mean, he knows what to do. Even in his anger, he prays to God, but his prayer is kind of strange. He says, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? 
So obviously there's something between him and God that we did not hear in the book. Here he's telling God, well, I told you that you would be repentant of these guys, so I didn't want to go. You know, I already knew that you were going to do this. You and I had this discussion already. Have you ever had a discussion where you kind of know that God's going to do something that you don't want him to do? And you have this little argument with God? I've had a couple of them in my lifetime. God, I know you're going to do this, and I really don't want this to happen. This was Jonah's attitude. God, I know you're going to, they're going to, if they repent, you're going to forgive them, and I don't want to go give them that chance of repenting. All right? And that's his attitude. This is his enemy. And remember, we've said, when he goes to preach to them, he's feeling like a traitor to his nation. Here was his opportunity to see the enemy destroyed. All I've got to do is not preach to them, and the enemy of my country no longer exists. And God makes him go and speak. And he gets a little angry because he knows that God's going to forgive them if they repent. And they did repent. And he goes, I knew this was happening because I knew. He knew God's character. He says, I knew that you are gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and you repent of the evil you intend to do. He understood that God is great, has grace. He has mercy, and that he doesn't, he isn't quick to judge. We should take great pleasure in that, and Jonah was probably very happy when he did it to Israel. God, I'm really happy in Israel that you're gracious and merciful and you're slow to anger, and when we repent, you forgive us. But he goes, I expected you'd do the same thing for Nineveh. Now, you don't realize how hard this is for a Jewish prophet to even be saying. The Jewish people believed that the Gentiles were worthless. They didn't deserve God's grace. They didn't deserve God's mercy. And he's saying, God, I knew that you were going to be just, you were going to treat them the same way you treat us. That had to stick in his throat because of his attitude toward Gentiles. Even in Jesus' day, the Jews hated Gentiles. There, there was a saying that Gentiles were created to, to be fuel for hell. All right, we're the wood for hell in the way, they, the way they looked at it. So this is hard for him to say. God, I knew if they repented, you would be kind to them and forgive them. That's why I ran the other direction, God. I knew that you would do this, so therefore I, I left. This is a pretty bold statement from Jonah. He's talking to God. Now, one thing about this is, you know, how many times do we hold our tongue when we're talking to God, thinking that God doesn't know our thoughts? God, you're, we're so angry with God, but we would never say what we're angry about. Jonah at least is angry enough to tell God his anger, what he, why he's angry. God already knew. And when we're angry with God, we're upset with God, we might as well tell him. Because he already knows what our problem is. And Jonah tells him what's going on and then he goes and because of this God I just want to die now I'm not sure that he wanted to die because Nineveh had been spared I'm not sure if he wanted to be be, be die because now he thinks well see now I'm a false prophet I told him they were going to be destroyed and they're not going to be destroyed so I deserve to die might be a little bit of both God, I've been a traitor to my people and you're going to spare these, you're going to spare our enemy. And it could be all of the above. 
It could be all of the above. You know, you have spared our enemy. Why? I just want to die. Because I know what's going to happen in the future. You're going to use these people to attack. This is when the same picture in Isaiah, when he went to Hezekiah and he goes, you know, uh, and he's in tears because he knows that God is sparing him, but that bad things are going to happen because God answered that prayer. You know, there's that point where sometimes God answers prayers that we kind of regret later on. And Jonah's at this point, and he goes, and he didn't even pray for this, but he did not want God to forgive Nineveh. He wanted them destroyed because he did not want to see them ta- attack his people and conquer his people. And he's going, God, I just want to die. It is better for me to die than to live. And we're going to find out that Jonah has a real problem with highs and lows. One moment he is extremely high, the next moment he is extremely low. In this chapter, we see all of that. All right, uh, we see it even in the belly of the belly of the fish. He is very low. He's dying. Before that, he said, "Just kill me." And again, I think he had the same attitude. He's going, "Hey, just throw me in the water. I'd rather die anyway because I don't want to go to Nineveh." Just throw me in the water and let me die. And God, and God swallows him and makes him not die. <laughs> now he brings him back and makes him speak. And now he's back to, God, I told you I just want to die. I mean, you saved, you saved my enemy. How many times do we watch God do nice things to people we don't like? We look at them and say, God, they don't deserve your mercy. They don't deserve your kindness. Do we? Not really, but yet somehow we oftentimes get to where we think we're better than somebody else. This is where Jonah's at. You know, hey, we're better than them. They should, they should have been die- dead and you made me speak to them and now they've repented. And I don't know what was special. I don't know what God did. I don't know what God made them hear about his message because his message as recorded in the scripture was not one to bring repentance. 40 days and you're going to be destroyed. End of story. That's the message we're recorded. But God worked on their hearts to make them respond. Jonah gets angry. God, you didn't destroy our enemy. You know, I gave, I gave the, the, the harshest message I possibly could. I gave them no desire for repentance, and you repented and, and gave them forgiveness. And I knew you would do this because you are slow to anger. This is a good thing for us, that God is slow to anger. All through the Bible, he's been slow to anger. He doesn't destroy the first generation that causes all the problems. He waits and says, all right, next generation, are you going to repent? Next generation, are you going to repent? Next generation, are you going to repent? And then at some point, he says, judgment comes. Why has God delayed his second coming as long as he had? Because different groups have repented and brought revival. Will he bring a, a, a repentance if we repent? Yes, he'll bring repentance and push off the destruction of this world if there's a great repentance and revival. Will there be? God only knows. I pray for a revival. I'd like to see a, one side of me wants to see a revival. The other side of me says, Jesus, come quickly. I want to go home. Now, just, just get it all over with and let us go home and let's, have this, uh, let's go have the wedding feast and the great big party in heaven while you make life miserable on this earth. I've got a lot of relatives that aren't saved, so I'm not sure that I want that. And one side of me doesn't want that. You know, I want it selfishly. Get me out of here. But I, on the other side of me, I'm going, God, there's so many people that need to be touched first before that happens. And 
Jonah wasn't in that place. He was just saying, destroy them. <laughs> he didn't even have the flip side of it. God, be gentle to them. All right, verse 4. Then the Lord said, do you well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made he a booth and sat under it in the shadow till the night that he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jordan that it might, uh, Jordan, over Jonah, that it might bring shadow over his head and deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd. All right. Jonah gets angry. God asks him a very simple question. Is it good that you're angry? Do you do well to be angry? Notice on this first time that God asks him that, he didn't answer. He doesn't answer. I think he knows that God has asked him a question and that he's guilty. He knows that he's not good. Right? He knows that his anger is bad. He's supposed to be a man of God and God has forgiven these people and he's not willing to forgive them. How many times do we get to the place where we are not willing to forgive somebody of something they have done? You know, the only person we hurt when we do that is us. They're not really hurt. Now, if we're good friends with them, they might be temporarily not understanding what's going on. But you know, you don't talk to somebody long enough. They go next and go some, find somebody else to talk to and make friends with. Uh, so you're only hurting yourself when you're angry with somebody. And you know, this is true because sometimes people have decided they're going to go fix their anger problem with somebody 20 years later. And they go, you know, I've really been angry with you. I'm sorry. I want to forgive you for what you did. Uh, what did I do? You, you were mad at me? I never noticed. <laughs> now, what did I do that made you so mad that you've been mad for me for how long? <laughs> you know, and that's usually what ends up happening. You, you get ready to forgive somebody and they're looking at you like, all right, I accept your forgiveness, but what, what was it that I did? They've moved on, usually. You know, we didn't move on. We were out of fellowship with that person. We had no, no joy around that person, no desire to be around that person. When we saw them walking down the street, we walked the other way or across the street because we were so angry with them and they, didn't even, they weren't affected by it at all. We sometimes will get angry with God. And what does 1 John 1, 9 says? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. It doesn't make us saved. It brings us back into fellowship. When we're angry with God and not willing to repent, it's not God out there saying, well, I reject you. It's me rejecting God because every time I get near him, I feel guilty. I get close to his righteousness. I get close to his word. I get close to his people. And I get this nagging guilt. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. And I pull away and re reverse from the church and hide from the church because I don't want to be near God's people because it's making me guilt, feel guilty. And all God's saying is just repent, confess, and repent. And then he wraps his arms around us, drags us right back into him with no condemnation, according to Romans 8.1. 8, there is no th therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says, I accept you. I just wanted you to confess. And it's not him out there. What happened when Adam and Eve sinned? God showed up for his appointment with them. They didn't show up for the appointment. They hid. Did God know what they had done even before they didn't show up? Oh, yes, he knew what had happened. 
He kept his appointment, and if they had kept the appointment and confessed their sin, God would have forgiven them. So what does he say? Adam, where are you? Like he didn't know. Adam, here's your chance. Come out and confess. Uh, God, we're guilty. We, you know, and he didn't confess. He goes, well, you know, we're hiding. We're, we're, we're naked. We're hiding. How did you know you were naked? Did you eat the fruit? Uh, yeah, we ate the fruit. And it was her fault. It was her fault. Yeah, and that's the part I'd love, you know. He pointed both ways. God, you gave her to me, so God, if you hadn't given her to me, I would never have eaten this fruit, and it's her fault. Now, he pointed both ways. God, I am, I am innocent. So he's still not confessing. I'm innocent. God, if you hadn't given her to me, I would have had, this would never have happened. You know, she, it, she's the one that did it, but you're guilty too because you gave her to me. Then talks to Eve, you know, what did you do? Well, the serpent, the serpent did it. And that blame game has gone on forever. Has gone on forever. And has never changed. That we always will blame other people rather than take personal responsibility. And God wants us to take responsibility for our actions and quit blaming others. Now, what, what was the big thing? The devil made me do it. No, the devil never made me do anything. He might have tempted me. He might have put the thoughts and things into my brain for a moment. He might have put the sight in front of me. But he did not make me do anything. I'm a free agent. It's not a true statement. You made a choice. Now, he, he encouraged your choice many times. But even then, we're told that we have a problem. We have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So we have three problems against us right off the bat. Okay. The devil will exploit our problem, but we have a problem. We will sin even without the devil's involvement. Now, he'll come along and he'll help us out. He'll put things in front of our eyes that, that, that tempt us. He'll put uh, uh, the, the lust of our flesh where it desires bad things and, and encourage us with things that entice our flesh. And the pride of life, what is good for me? What is good for me? We will fall all the time without, without help. And he just, he kind of goads us along. And he doesn't even have to do that many times. And so here we are. Jonah is not willing to confess. He's going, and he doesn't answer. All he does is leave the city, go up on the east side of the city on the mountain. You're, you're, what you did there, he's huffing and puffing and he's angry, stomping his feet probably as he goes up the mountain. And he creates a quick shelter, a booth and sits down and he's going to wait there to see what God's going to do to the city. Now we know from history he would have had a whole long wait, 148 years to wait for the city to be destroyed. All right, He's not going to live that long obviously but if he's going to wait, try to outweigh God, he's going to wait longer than his lifetime. How many times do people literally get so angry with God that they try to outweigh God? I've I've argued with God. I spent six years arguing with God one time. Miserable life for six years. Well, I argued with him that I was going to do things my way. What's Jonah doing? I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to sit here in this, in, this, in this shed until you do something, God. You said you were going to destroy that city. That's what I told him. I'm waiting for you to destroy that city. And he sits there. Angry with God. Huffing and puffing. You know very angry, 
very hot. He's in the desert <laughs> up on the top of a hill. And he builds this shade and he sits there and he goes, I am going to wait right here until something happens. And for God did not, to not, not destroy, uh, to go ahead and destroy the city after all. Yeah. Well, he said God was going to destroy him. That's what God said he was going to do. I'm going to destroy the city in 40 days. That was his word. He was a prophet. I think he only intended to wait 40 days to see if his prophecy was going to come true. Uh, it may have been longer, but you know, he's, he's upset. This is God's enemy, or Israel's enemy that has now been forgiven. And his message was, you're going to be destroyed. And if you'll note, in his message, he never said repent. He never gave a positive message to this. The king is the one that said, let's, let's fast, let's not eat or drink for, for this period of time, and hopefully maybe their God will re repent of his, his, his uh, prophecy. The king had more understanding of God than, than Jonah does. Though Jonah says, I knew you would be forgiving. Jonah already knew God's, God's character. He just doesn't, he isn't ready to accept God's character toward this individual. Yeah, he, he's up there saying, I, don't, I think he knew that God wasn't because God said that he was going to forgive them. But he's up there hoping that God's going to get, destroy his enemy. God said he was going to. God, I'm waiting for you to destroy them. I know you repented, God, but, you know, I, maybe he's thinking they're not going to stay good. And that God's going to destroy them next week or something, you know, within, within the 40 days. I don't know. We don't know exactly what he's thinking. All we know is he goes up on the mountainside to look down on the city and say, God, I'm waiting for you to destroy these people. You said you were going to do it. I'm waiting. <laughs> Verse 6. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shadow over his head and deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad for the gourd. All right? So here, look at all the things God prepares for Jonah. He's on the ship. He prepares a storm. He gets thrown into the water. He prepares a great fish. He repents. God gets, prepares the fish to throw him up on land. He gets to the city, and a message is given, and, and God delivers the people. He goes up on the mountainside, and God prepares a plant to give him shade. There's more things he's going to prepare as we go through this chapter. All right? So he gives Jonah shade. Remember, he's, he's put this booth together, some kind of lean-to, a bunch of sticks tagged together, and he's got a little bit of shade. And God, what a supernatural plant. This plant grows up, covers, covers his lean-to, and gives him lots of shade. This is a supernatural plant growth. All right, we don't know what kind of gourd it is or anything. We just know it's a supernatural growth because it in one night pops up and covers his shed. Covers his shed. You know, that's a pretty fast-growing plant. So this is a supernatural growth pro <laughs> given to this plant. And Jonah goes, okay, I am exceedingly glad. And again, this is the word glad, glad. <laughs> All right, so God is saying he has gone from being totally depressed, totally angry, too. Now I'm very, very happy. I've got shade. All right. He's still sitting up on the mountain waiting for God to do something, and now God has provided him shade. He's feeling pretty good. God has now given gracious to him. Now think about this. He is in disobedience. He has not repented. 
God is gracious to him and he's glad. And yet he will not be glad that God is being gracious to Nineveh. That is the height of hypocrisy, but how many times do we practice that kind of hypocrisy? God, thank you for saving me. Let them go to hell. Now, I don't even want you to forgive them, God. You know, they are just evil, bad. You know, you know I'm glad I'm going to heaven. I'm glad you died for my sins, but oh boy, I am sure glad that you're not talking to them and, and reaching them. Oh, you want me? To? No, no, God. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that they're going to hell. I don't want them to. You know. No, 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 God. I'm not talking to them. <laughs> That's, that's Jonah's attitude right now. No way, I'm not going back. I'm, not, I'm waiting for you to destroy these guys. All right, but, verse 7. Normally, I like the word but. We just had something good, which means that this but is something bad. But God prepared a worm when the morning arose the next day and smote the gourd and it withered. So here's another thing God has prepared. He prepared a a plant, the fish, the storm, the plant, the, and now a worm. A worm like fish. All right, oh, and the fish. Now, this worm is quite interesting in, in this. This worm is the crocus illicis. This worm is the one that they get red dye from. This worm crawls up a tree when it's time to give birth, lays the eggs on the tree, covers it with its own body, melts away into a red crimson ooze that stains the tree forever. And when the children are born, it eats the flesh of the mother and consumes the, the liquid blood, the liquid red crimson of it. This is such a beautiful picture because this is a picture of Jesus dying on the cross for us to be forgiven and covered with his blood. And what does he tell us to do? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is the picture. This is called the uh, crimson, crimson worm or the crucifixion worm in some cases because it is the picture of what Jesus does by giving his life for us. It is also they would harvest this worm, this worm and take that dye and use it for dyeing things crimson. All right. If they waited long enough, the body actually turned to a waxy substance that they could use as a resin. So they couldn't get it while it was, while it was a red, worm, red dye. They would be able to take and get the waxy part of the body that was left over. This is a very beautiful picture of the gospel message in this. And this word for worm is used not in every place where worm is used, but several places this is the way that worm is used. All right? So it's a very beautiful picture of Jesus going to the cross willingly staining the cross permanently you know, before God so that we can be covered by his blood so that we can be made into him and eat of his flesh and, be, and eat, drink of his blood and become one with him to be literally covered by that resin and that protection through our sanctification. Beautiful picture. And this is the worm. And it's kind of a sidebar on this because it has really nothing to do with the destruction here. It's because I look deeper into the Hebrew word on it. Because I went deep into the word. Has nothing really to do with this picture other than what happens when the cross comes into our life usually? Does everything get good when, when the cross of Christ comes into our life? Or do things get hard? Things usually get hard once I'm saved. People will accuse me of being judgmental, holier than thou. You think you're better than me because you're no longer hanging out with me and going to the bar and 
carousing and sleeping around or whatever it is that you were doing before you got saved. And you start getting criticized. So that is part of what we're seeing here. Um, you would have to look up the uh, crocus illicis, C O C C U S I L L I C I S. Yes, I C I S. And this is a worm that was used for a dye during this period of time. Um, two words. Uh, so this is what God is prepared to take out. This he he brings the. He's bringing the cross into Jonah's life to say, I want to bring things difficult for you again so that you will now be humbled. And now he brings this worm in, it kills the plant. And this plant dies as fast as it grew. Within the day, it withers away completely. Now we see that happening in the desert. Plants grow up pretty good one in the night, not usually enough to cover my, shed, my, my, my entire shelter, but we see how fast that they can wither away in the desert. The sun gets out to 110, 120 degrees, and that plant just goes, whoop, I'm gone. <laughs> this is what's happened here. God has attacked the root of this, of this plant, and it is dead. And verse 8, And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, the Lord prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on the head of Jonah, that he fainted and wished in himself to die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. All right, so the next day he's back to being totally depressed. I don't know if this guy had a mental problem or not, but he's high and low. You know, he's showing every sign of uh, being bipolar. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the sun rises up, and we know what it's like. We live in the desert. We know what it's like to have a hot day. And we don't know what the temperature is, but the temperature is destroying this, this vine. And to top it off, God sends a vehement wind. All right? This means it was a strong, hot wind. All right? That's literally what it meant. It was a strong, hot wind. It was not that nice, refreshing wind that we get around here frequently, you know, that cools you off and makes you feel comfortable. It was one that made you bake. It's hot outside, and this wind is making him feel even worse. And he is going to get grumpy again. God, you were being very nice to me. You covered me with this shade, and you made everything good for me, and, and I was happy, and now look what you've done to me. You, know, you have just made my life miserable. And again, how many times do we look at God and say, God, you are making my life miserable, especially when we haven't repented. And God specializes in that. If we're not repenting, he is going to make our life miserable as his children until we decide to repent. Because he wants us, he's going to discipline us. And he says, I discipline my children. If I don't discipline you, you're not my child. So if somebody can get away with doing wrong and not fall under conviction, not fall under problems in their life, they aren't God's child, God's child, plain and simple. They're not, and I've said this over and over, if you can sin without conviction in your heart, then you have to look and say, God, am I really your child? Because that conviction is the Holy Spirit living in you, talking to you and telling you you're wrong. Now you might 
seer of the Holy Spirit, but there has to be a time when you go, I knew what I was doing was wrong. Now, if Jonah had lasted long enough and ran away and everything, he might have seared his conscience, but he, right now he's still tender enough to know that God's talking to him. And he gets irritated. Now, I believe it was Sarah that mentioned, you know, remember, he's just recently come out of the belly of the fish. His body is probably acid burned to begin with. He's sitting out in the hot sun. He's sitting out in a hot, windy day. We know what hot winds are around a desert. It probably wasn't just wind. It's probably dirt and dust hitting his body. That is, has these minor burns from the acid of the fish's stomach. He's feeling miserable. He's feeling self-pity. He's angry at God. And he says he gets exceedingly mad again. <laughs> and it says that he fainted. Now this word fainted in the Hebrew literally means that he wraps himself up in a cloak. Okay. Uh, to protect himself. The wind is blowing, the dust is blowing, and he protects, he wraps himself up. You know, why they put fainted there, I don't know. <laughs> but he covers himself. He wraps himself up. And he says he wished for, again, this word means entreated God. It's not, I wish I was dead. This is, he's praying. God, kill me. Kill me now. I am tired of this life. I, you know, it is better that I die than live because I am so miserable. You've made me a lying prophet. You didn't destroy this city. I'm now a traitor of my country. You didn't destroy the, my enemy. I am miserable. I'm, my body is sore. I'm terrible. You've got me out here in this heat. The wind is blowing. Just kill me and get it over with. Now, I haven't been quite this bad in my lifetime. Now, I came close when I was fighting God for six years. I did get close to God. Why don't you just end this? Because I'm tired, tired. My attitude was, God, I give up. And he said, about time. <laughs> Jonah is just looking at it. Now, his response is totally different from Job. Job has all these bad things. And he tells his wife, you know, can we accept the good from God and not bad? And, you know, he does get to the place where he starts complaining a little bit when he's been harassed by his friends. Yeah. Yeah. Why did you let me be born? Why? Why did they celebrate my birth? You know, you should have let me die, and that's understandable. And if I recall, that was in when his friends were talking to him as well. It wasn't wasn't early. Now all of his good friends are telling him how bad he is and how he deserves what he did because he must have done something bad because bad things don't happen to good people. What a lie! Now that lie's been around forever. Bad things don't happen to good people because Job is one of the first books to be in the Bible. And that lie has been around forever. And that was what he was told. And he finally just said, God, why, you know, he's being harangued. Jonah doesn't have anybody haranguing him other than himself. He does not have the same attitude that Job does. Uh, he's grump, grumbling and griping. God it would be better if I was dead, you know. You, you know, I am, I'm hot, I'm miserable, the sand is blowing all over my body. Uh, you, have, you have not destroyed this city that I said was going to be destroyed, so now I'm a false prophet. You haven't destroyed this, this nation that's going to be a problem for my people. What's wrong with you, God? <laughs> you know, I'm your prophet, and you're supposed to be good to me and, and, and meet, my, meet my requests. So just kill me. I, again, I have not been that bad, but I have argued with God in the past. I have complained to God. It's not a real smart thing to do. God always wins. 
Now, it always wins in the long run, so it's really not worth it. But at the same token, if you're feeling this way, go ahead and tell God. Number one, he already knows. But you know what happens if you verbalize it? It becomes real to you. You know, did I really just say that to God? Did I really just tell God how angry I was to him? And all of a sudden it hits home. Many times our actions say, God, I don't trust you. I don't think you're going to meet my needs. Well, how many of us would say that to God? Probably none of us in this room. But how many of us act like God is not going to meet our needs and take care of us? I've got it. I've got to figure out how to fix this problem. God, you're just not moving fast enough. I don't think you're going to move. I've got to go fix this problem. What are we saying? God, you're, you just aren't going to keep your word. You're not helping me. But we would never say that out loud. If we did, it might shock us. If we did, then we'd come to, God, I need to repent. I need, I need forgiveness. You have, you, have done some, you have done something interesting here. All right? And God now asks him again. He's asked him this question before. Verse 9, And God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry? Except this time he goes for the gourd. And this time Jonah answers, I do well to be angry even unto death. God, I don't care about Nineveh. I don't care about that other stuff. You know, I'm not caring about Nineveh and all, but I am very angry that you killed this plant. God, you were very gracious to me. You gave me shade for a day and you were nice to me and now I'm angry that you destroyed this plant. But God, I'm not, I'm not happy that you're being gracious to Nineveh. Even at this point, he is not understanding the hypocrisy of where he's at. And it is easy for us to stand in hypocrisy. What do, what do we usually judge when we judge somebody? It's usually an area that I'm having trouble with to begin with. You know, I'm looking at somebody and they're, they're, they're having trouble smoking. And I am struggling with not smoking. Maybe I haven't smoked for a long time, but I'm struggling. Now I'm going to get judging on those people. Now, I'm going to, I usually attack what I am struggling with. And that's true of just about anything. If I have no problem with it, I don't usually care what you do. It's between you and God. But if you think about it, what do you attack about other people are usually things that you're struggling with. Uh, and I've had this, you know, and it's sometimes very interesting to, to think, and all of a sudden I get struck and I get angry with something somebody's doing. I'm going, my God, what is it that I'm doing that this is striking a nerve with? And Jonah's angry. He sees that he's been given grace by God and yet is not willing to extend that grace to another. This is what God gives us grace for so that we can extend that grace to others. In John, we're told we love him because he first loved us us. We cannot even know love without knowing the love of God first. Because for us, human love is always conditional. I love you or like you because you're nice to me. You give me good things. You make me feel good. Soon as you don't make me feel good, I don't love you anymore. And that's not the kind of love God gives us. Agape, God's love, is unconditional love. He says, I love you because I choose to love you. I am glad that his love is unconditional. 
because I would be in trouble <laughs> if his love was conditional. Because I don't deserve his love, and neither does anybody else in the room or, you know, deserve his love. We don't deserve his love, so it is very, I am very glad that it's unconditional love. And he says, I choose to love you. And because he does not change, he will never not love us. When people stand before God at the white throne judgment to be sent into hell, God still loves them. His love is not going to allow them to go to heaven because they've rejected him, because his mercy and his holiness demands that they be judged, but he's still going to love them. And I really do. I picture God at the white throne judgment with tears in his eyes saying, I, I gave you every opportunity not to, not to choose this. And you have rejected me. Now you get what you have asked for. Now I can see maybe there's not tears because he knows they're getting, but I can picture that he's, his love for them is going to show on his face. I really don't want to do this, but this is what you wanted. His love for us is so great. And he never stops loving us. He loved us before he created us. And this is the hard thing to understand. Before he created man, he knew that man was going to sin. He knew that his love for man was going to bring Jesus to the cross to die for us for our sins. And still he created man. I don't understand that. <laughs> to me, in my flesh, I'm going, God, I don't understand why you would love man enough and you would create us even knowing that we were going to sin and knowing that you were going to have to die on that cross for us to buy us back and that you were going to have to be separated from yourself and be hurt for our salvation. And yet his love for us was so great even before we existed. Jeremiah says, While you were in, before you were formed in the belly of your, of your mother's womb, I knew you. Because God is outside of time. He knows us before anything starts. And yet he loves us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He tells us, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? God. He's the only one that knows the depths of the depravity of our heart. We lie to ourselves all the time. Well, I'm not really that bad. <laughs> yeah. And we laugh about that, but we say it all the time. I, yeah, I wasn't all that bad, you know. Compared to... So-and-so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I hear this all the time at the prison. Well, I'm really not that bad. I'm better than most of the people here in the prison. Well, I'm really, I'm really glad you have a really high bar in, in front of you. All right? But don't we all do that? I'm better than whoever's below me. I'm never going to look at the person that I think is really righteous. You know, God, I'm, a, well, I'm not quite as good as Mother Teresa seems to be, but, you know... Uh, let me go find somebody down the, down the pole until I finally get down to a low enough one to say, I'm better than they are. Because we want to look like we're doing something good. We want to stand in the pride of life. God, I deserve your love because I am doing something good. And God says, you're not doing anything good. Now, Isaiah 64 says that all our righteousness is filthy ranks. When they stand before God at the white throne judgment, they're not standing in their sin. Jesus paid for the sin. They're standing in their own righteousness before the throne of God to look down and say, God, I deserve to go into heaven because of all the, uh, well, God, you know, these can't be the good things I did. You must have put the wrong clothes on me. You put, you put my bad things on me. And God says, no, those are your good things. That is your righteousness. That's all the good that you have ever done. You don't deserve to come into heaven. 
because of your righteousness. Your righteousness does not stand, stand the test of time. And they're sent into hell in their righteousness, thinking that they have done good. And this is what you hear. When you witness to somebody, more often you hear, well, I hope my good outweighs my bad. You are out of luck. And I sometimes get that strict with them. You are out of luck because your good is what God's going to judge you for. Your, ju- your, ri- your righteousness is rags in front of God's standards. And Jonah doesn't understand that he is not good. He does not understand that he deserves the same thing that Nineveh, that he's wishing on Nineveh. We need to be very careful when we wish bad things on other people. Because usually we deserve what they get. And we might deserve it more than they do because we might have more knowledge. Do you realize that when you have more knowledge of what God desires and you sin, you are actually worse off than the person who sinned without the knowledge? Not saying their sin was not bad, but you knew better. We probably all told our kid at some point, you knew better because we've already talked about this. And we're more angry when they knew better. When we've, the first time, all right, you probably should have known better, but I'm going to explain to you that it's wrong. They go out and they do it again. We're a little more angry with them. They know better. They, we've already had the discussion that you weren't supposed to do it. There was, no, there was no excuse for you doing it this time. Jonah's not really accepting that, even though he knows God's graciousness. So he has no excuse for not being gracious to Nineveh. And... You know, and he says, God, I'm angry to death. You know, just, I'm, I, I, I deserve to be dead. I'm so angry. You killed my plant. You killed my plant, and I am angry. And then God says to him, you have had pity on the gourd? You had, you had, you had pity on this plant? You know, for which you have not labored. You didn't do anything for this plant. You didn't make it grow. You didn't, matter of fact, you didn't even plant the gourd. You did nothing You didn't make it come up. You didn't make it grow. You didn't plant it. It came up in the middle of the night and it died in the middle of the night. And God's trying to make a point to him. In this case, I think he's also talking about the shortness of life. All through the scriptures, we're told that our life is but a vapor. We have a short life. You know, we may think, you know, you know, I'm going to live to be, listen, let's go really crazy. I'm going to live to be 300 years old. That's still in God's sight, a vapor. It comes and it goes. God sees all of the world, all 6,000 years of the world, as if it's just gone by in a couple days. It's just here, here today, gone tomorrow. You're here today, gone tomorrow. When we die, we will probably be forgotten by, forgotten by most of the people in the, in the world. Our family might remember us for a few generations. If we do something really big in history, we might have a mark that somebody might remember us might. But even then, how many of us really know the stories of our founding fathers of America? They only existed 200 years ago. 250 years ago, and most of us don't know the stories of them. We might know their names. We might know two or three stories from their life. But we don't remember much about them, and they're historical big figures in our history. And we forget them. What do we know about our great-grandparents in most cases? And if you do know your great-grandparents, what do you know about your great-great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents? You'd be lucky if you know their names unless you're really into genealogy. You don't even know their names. 
that's how fast our life dwindles from us. Even if you're famous, people forget you. You know, we know names like Martin Luther. What do you know about Martin Luther? Well, he was a great reformer. He, he, he pulled away from the Catholic Church and became the, the Protestant leader. Well, maybe you know that he wrote lots and lots of pamphlets. Maybe you know a few more things about him, but, you know, unless you've studied his life, you probably don't know much about Martin Luther. How about uh, these other reformers uh, that were out there? How many of them do you know? Do you know Wycliffe? Do you know Tyndale? Do you know anything about those guys? They're responsible for giving us the English Bible. Beyond that, I don't know much about their life. They spent their entire ministry translating the Bible into English. That's what they're known for. Did they do more? Oh yeah, they did a whole lot more. But you know, this is the point. How many of us really know these names? Do we know anything? These are, these are people that should be famous to us. Especially if we're Christians and we want to know anything about our history and we don't even know their names half the time. And we don't know what, what's going on with them. We don't know their history. We don't know anything about them. And like I said, most, of, most people listening to this probably didn't even know that Wycliffe and Tyndale were translators. Now, both of them are still, they have very famous translation schools tra named after them. Wycliffe translators. Now, he didn't start them. <laughs> But they took his name because he was a translator and they still translate the Bible. Tyndale does the same thing. Tyndale Publishing House. Started out as a Bible translation company and has gone to other, other things. All right, but they took their names from the, the, the actual person and people don't know anything about the actual people. Forgotten, quick. You know, this, this plant grew up in the night and has gone in the night. What makes you think you're so special? Jonah you didn't do anything for it and then God said in verse 11 and should not I spare Nineveh have compassion on Nineveh all right that great city wherein there are 120,000 people and much cattle oh then oh, he says one more they don't know their right hand from their left now, he's not saying literally they don't know their right hand from their left. He's saying they don't know right from wrong. Jonah, they don't have my word telling them what they should do, what they shouldn't do. They don't know what's right and wrong. They and this is literally, it's an idiom saying they don't, know the, they don't know right from wrong. He goes, shouldn't I spare this great city? 120,000 people. And Jonah, you've been worried about a... A, a plant. You've been worried about your own life. You're worried about your nation. And he goes, there's 120 people that aren't going to hell because of your message. Yeah. This is a sad statement for Jonah. You're, you know, you're angry that I didn't kill them. You're angry that a, a plant died. You're angry about all these things. There's 120,000 people there that are not going to hell. He had one of the greatest mission fields that answered 120,000 converts, and he's not happy. Now, almost every missionary or, or evangelist, if they had 120,000 people come down to the altar, they would be ecstatic. God, thank you. What a, what, a wonderful, what a wonderful message we had and revival we had. Jonah's upset. Now, notice Jonah does not answer God at this time. 
This question is left hanging. Jonah never answers, and we stop the book. And we never hear from Jonah again. We don't know if Jonah went back, if he stayed mad at God, if he repented. We don't know anything about him from after this point. I would like to think that he repented and, and got right with God. But there's nothing here to tell us that that's what he did. It's a bad... In, in reality, is it, a bad, it is a bad story. You, you have not completed the story. His prophecy did. His prophecy came true. He was an honest prophet. 148 years later, Nineveh is destroyed because of their viciousness against the northern kingdom. God destroys them and Babylon conquers them. Babylon, when they're used to conquer the southern kingdom, God says, because of your viciousness, I'm going to take you out and puts the Medo-Persian Empire in there because of their viciousness in taking out his people. So it is fulfilled but not in his lifetime. All he sees is, God, you made me a liar. You made me a prophet that is told, told a false prophecy. He's not seeing it from God's perspective, saying, okay, Jonah, just, don't, just calm down 148 years from now. I will take them out. You know, God, Jonah's looking at this in the temporal. Same way we look at it. God, I don't know what you're doing, but you haven't done what I want you to do, and I, and I feel like I'm in misery. And God says, I have a better plan for you. I have a better plan than what you're thinking of. I, I have a good plan for you if you would just be patient. And we're going, oh, no, God, you're not doing what I want, and I'm miserable, and I'm tired, and I don't want, you know, I don't like what you're doing to me. And God says, just be patient. Now, sometimes people will say, well, I didn't get healed. Maybe God has a better plan for you. Maybe he's taking you home. Maybe he's going to give you the ultimate healing. You know, I listened to one guy on the radio. He goes, somebody asked him to pray for somebody. And he goes, they were so sick. He goes, God, I just pray that you take this person home and heal them. And she, and she goes, no, I don't want that. Why not? Why yeah. And I don't know what, in, you know, what got him into, into that saying. But, you know, it is true. The ultimate healing would be to die and go home. But do we think in those terms? You know, do we think that when things seem to be bad for us, that God has taken and ripped Romans 8.28 out of the Bible? You know, for all things work together for good, and yet we go through what seems to be bad, and we say, oh, God, this is bad. There's nothing good going to ever come out of that. I don't care that you said Romans 8.28 is in the Bible, God. I just don't believe it. You know, tear it out. It doesn't, it doesn't apply in this situation. It's a test. Do we believe what God says? And that is what most of the things that are happening to us that seem bad are. God, do I trust you that you will work things out for good, that you have a good plan for me, even though I can't see it? Job, it doesn't tell us how long he suffered. All right? I don't know if it was even that. It could have been much shorter than that because these guys, there's there's seven, there's there's six or seven speeches. It it probably it probably took about a month overall, for all of this stuff to happen to him. Might have been as quick as two weeks, I think, because you have, you have the three friends talking twice, so that's six days. They're probably not talking twice in a day. You got the young man that talks to him, so you've got a full week. They sat for a while just looking at him. You know. Yeah. So you're at about two weeks. And then you've got the time when, his, when he loses his family and his wife well, is yeah, criticizing him. Part of the chapter, man, everything's 
So we're probably talking three weeks to, to, to four weeks at, at the quickest. That's still a long time when everything seems to be going wrong. And you're miserable. And he doesn't have, he doesn't have Romans 8.28 in, in his Bible to tell him that all things work together for good. He believes in a prosperity gospel because when you read his answers back, his friends tell him, Jonah, uh, Jonah, Job, bad things don't happen to good people, so you must have done something really bad. And his answers are usually in very poetic, I know what you're saying is true, but I don't deserve what has happened to me. I really haven't been that bad. So he's justifying himself, and God's definition of him is he was a perfect man who hated evil. Now that doesn't mean he was perfect. He really deserved, bottom line, everything that came his way. But God had to break him and break his pride and break his understanding of how God blessed. And this is the problem with the prosperity gospel. If God doesn't do what you think he does, then, then you have a trouble with God. If, we don't, if we're understanding that God's going to bring what he wants to bring and he's got a good plan no matter what comes my way, then it doesn't really matter what comes in. I'm going, God... And I have this, I, I pray this way, God, I really don't understand how you're going to make this good, but I'm going to hold on to your verse. It's all I've got to hold on to the moment because my life seems to be miserable. And I prayed that way. God, I'm holding on to this. I'm holding on. That there's a knot at the end of this verse, God, and I'm holding on for dear life. I'm not letting go of this verse. I have no idea how you're going to work good out of this situation, but I'm holding on that you're going to work some good out of it. And the thing about that is we may not see what that good is in this lifetime. Because God never promised to show us the good. He just said, I will make something good out of it. And it might be for others. I have learned over the years that sometimes my trials are to encourage others. As I stay faithful to Romans 8.28 and look for the good that God's doing, and other people are looking at it and saying, wow, how can you stay faithful when all that stuff's happening? And they get blessed. And they get a good. Now, I'll get the reward in heaven. You know, I'll get the reward in heaven for staying faithful. But in this lifetime, I may not see the good. I'll see it in the eternity. So we want to always remember, Jonah never seems to repent. He ends the story with him angry at God. And as was said, it's a terrible story for its ending. Uh, there, there were a couple of things we would read in English class, and I'm looking at it, and I'm going, there's one particular one that I had to read several times over my lifetime, and I hated the ending, because it ended just like this. You know, and he never had a better night's sleep in his life. All right? Did he, did he die? Did he beat the enemy? Uh, who, who had the sleep? Who, 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 who did what? And... You know, it's a very, in, you know, it's a nice story. I like the story, but it ends terrible. <laughs> this is one of those stories that just ends. Just ends. No, no, it just ends here that, you know, he's still angry with God as far as we know. He's still justifying himself as far as we know. And God's saying, shouldn't you have compassion? With the message, I hope that he repented. But we don't know. Yeah. It just ends. And as you were saying, if I wrote this up as a, as a book and tried to sell this book, yeah. they were going, uh, what's, you know, number one, it's got a lot of strange things happening, but 
how did it end? You know, how, did, how did it, it just ended here? Why? Because God wants us to think. He wants us to think. He doesn't want it wrapped up in a nice, neat packet. Did Jonah repent? Did he not repent? Should he have repented? Absolutely, as far as I'm concerned. Did he repent? We don't know. But God still used him even if he didn't repent. And this is the good news for us. God will use us even if we are not a shining example of a Christian walking, walking in this world. God can still use us. Would he rather use a shining example of Christianity walking in this world? Obviously. You know, but you know what? Our sin and our forgiveness and repentance before God can have more impact on the lost world than if we never have a problem in our life. Many people have said, I watched that person. I watched them fall flat on their face. They were a terrible example of a Christian. But the next thing I knew, they repented, and they might have even asked them for forgiveness for being a bad, bad witness, and that impressed people. What is your God? You know, who is this God that you're worshiping that you can be forgiven? That you can get up and not try to make it seem like it was all okay. You know, and we don't want to do that. If we fall and we sin in front of the lost world, we have to do the hardest thing there is. Ask for forgiveness. Hardest thing for parents to do is ask their kids for forgiveness once in a while. When they, when they know they've done something that they need forgiveness for, the hardest thing is to humble yourself and say, I need your forgiveness. But you know what? It is what will touch the kids' hearts to ask for that forgiveness. I was a terrible example, or when I did this, it was wrong. I need you to forgive me. And the kids look at us like, oh, you know, that brings Christianity right down to the, to the, where the pavement and the rubber meets the pavement. I am asking for forgiveness because I know I am a sinner. Now, we don't like making people think that we're sinners. Newsflash, they already know. <laughs> Especially our family. <laughs> All right. People already know that we're a sinner. We can pretend that we're not. We can try to make them think that we're not. But they know when, we are, when we're sinning. They know the look we gave them and we were angry, even though we didn't say the, say the words. And it might not have totally show, came to our face, but they could see it in our eyes. They could see the, the drop in our expression that we were angry. Maybe we bit our tongue, we held our tongue. We didn't do anything, but they saw the anger. They see the lustful look. They see the covetous look when you look at their brand new car and wish it was yours, even if you don't say anything. They already know who we are. And if we pretend not to be what we are and we don't ask for forgiveness, then we look like a hypocrite. And we as Christians kind of will forgive others because we know we're hypocrites to each other already. The world does not usually forgive us of our hypocrisy. They're going, well, you said you're a Christian. You're supposed to be perfect. I hate the world's attitude about us. Now, we as Christians will say, I'm forgiven, but not perfect. Now, that's a cop-out most of the time, but it's a true statement. I don't have to try to be perfect because I'm, I'm just forgiven. I'm not perfect. It's a cop-out. And if we try it on the world, they, doesn't, they don't buy it for anything. They, now, they have too high a standard the other way. They expect us to be perfect, which we never can be. But this is where if we're humble enough to say, man, I blew it the other day when I got mad at you or said this to you or acted this way around you. Would you forgive me? They may or may not forgive us, but we are going to be humbled in their view and it will impact their life.
They're going, this person's different. They're not the hypocrite that I thought they were. Yeah, they did, they're not perfect, but it also tells them, because what's the thing that they're afraid of? If they see Christians that are, seem to be too good, I can never be a Christian because I can't be as good as that person. So on one side of the fact that if they see us fall, it's actually a good thing if we will humble ourselves and tell them that God forgives sin because they know they're going to sin, which is why a lot of them don't want to become a Christian. <laughs> There's no way I can not, not do <laughs> whatever their favorite sin is. You know, uh, I, I know that I'm bad. That I, I can't be like you. You're right. In your own strength, you can't be anywhere near me, and I can't be what I am without, without the strength of God in me. And it's because of Christ in me that I can be what I, which I appear to be. And if you accept Christ, you will have that same strength. Jonah apparently never really understands this. And we don't know, and I, you know, like I say, terrible stories, in, terrible ending in the story, but it is one to make us think. All right, God, what happened? Did Jonah, did Jonah you know, repent? Did, did he go and off, did he now run off to Tarshish now that he's done his job and not come back to Egypt, uh, Israel? Did he go back to Israel to be a prophet? Did he go kill himself because of his depression? We don't know anything about what happens here. And it just leaves us there to make us think. Make us think. And God does that a lot. There are a lot of stories that God does not finish. And he just says, I'm leaving this for you to think about. And for some people, they may look at, well, God, did you ever judge? It may have to go into the history book or the rest of the Bible and see that he did judge judge Nineveh and so that all these question marks are good for us they drive us into study they drive us into contemplation and so it's a good thing to way to finish it even though it's unsatisfying because this one this book of the Bible reads as a story it's very much like the book of Esther or the book of Ruth they read as a story all right Esther and Ruth are both beautiful love stories and they had the good endings. This story does not have a great ending. All right. But they read his books. They didn't write a great ending. I think it's a great ending for us to think about. But literally, literally speaking, it's a terrible ending because it didn't tie up all the loose ends. Uh, it's waiting for, okay, where's Jonah 2? Where, where, where's the second book of Jonah? I want to know what happened from here, and it doesn't, we don't ever see that. Uh, but God left it where he wanted it left at. So, all right, we're going to close in prayer. Next week, we're going to be in the book of Hosea. He's the prophet that was told by God to marry a prostitute so that he could show God's love for somebody who is always leaving him. Beautiful story, lots of, lots of prophecy stuck in amongst the story. It doesn't read quite as easy a story as Jonah, but that story is throughout the book and great prophecies in it. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Lord, help us learn to repent. Lord, help us learn to trust you in all that we do and to follow you for your grace and your mercy and to follow you in all that you do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, 
But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.